0: better way to do this Let me show you a better way you don't have to be Another face in the crowd Well, hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. There's always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, and it is Friday, I'm sorry, it is Monday, December the 19th, 2022, and this will be as threatened, uh, but there is one more, the last episode of the Survival Podcast. That's a live new episode for 2022. We will be back January 2nd, 2023, but don't worry, there will be rewinds in between there, Here's what I have decided to do as we go out with this last bit of the year. We will have this episode today. We will have episodes on the 20th, 21st, and 22nd. Uh, The 20th and 21st will be Rewinds. The uh, 22nd will be the Christmas special, and there's just not going to be a show uh, on Friday. Because I figure most people are going to bag that day from work or whatever, uh, leading into the holiday, and so I'm going to give myself, since I'm giving you a new one during a rewind week, I'm going to bag that day myself. Then The 26th, which is the day after Christmas, which is a Monday of the week between New Year's and Christmas, is the day that most businesses are giving their employees off to be home for Christmas, since we're, we're kind of getting hosed this year, for those of us with, that still have jo with the Christmas Eve and Christmas Day being on a weekend. So I'm going to bag that day as well, and then I'll have rewinds for you 27, 28, 29, 30. Little lead up to what these rewinds will be like. So again, rewinds tomorrow in the 21st, Christmas special the 22nd, bagging the 23rd and 25th, rewinds 27 through 30. What I thought would be cool is I went back in time, back in time, which you can time travel when you're a podcaster. And I went back, I believe that I started the list, don't hold me to it, it could have been 2010. I believe I started the list in 2009, and I picked an episode in December every year going forward till I ran out of needing episodes for a total of seven years of episodes. So they're all from this time of year, and they're each a year newer than the previous one, which I think will be interesting for those of you that listen to all the rewinds, to listen to the show sort of evolve and not evolve. I get all the time, you've changed, man. Well, I'm 50 and I was freaking 35 when I started the show. I hope so. If you don't change over 15 years. But the show really hadn't changed that much. We focus less on politics, which people bitched about in the beginning, said we did too much, even though I don't think we did that much back even then. And that's about it. Otherwise, we do pretty much the same thing, but we bring new information. I thought it'd be fun to do, and I thought maybe I could help keep you company with rewinds during the downtime if you do have to work or travel or whatever, and if you're not listening to them because you are going to be with family, good on you, because that's why I'm doing them so I can be with family myself for this downtime. So what are we going to talk about today? Today I decided I woke up thinking about cooking, and I can tell you why I woke up thinking about cooking. One, last week, Texas Slim and I sat down and we talked about the Beef Initiative and the nutrition in beef and what have you. We talked about a thing called Calvin's Feast. He brought up all these different sauces that are made and different cooking techniques. And that got my brain going. So that was one thing. Number two, we're heading into the holidays. I'm going to be making a bad-ass holiday meal like I always do. And, And people always say, like, Jack, you don't have to work. We can do something else. I don't, it doesn't bother me. It is a peaceful, meditative state that I am in when I am in the kitchen cooking. There's only two things that screw that up. One, people not showing up when they're supposed to, which I have largely with some of the stuff I'll talk about today, eliminated that is a pain point. And the other thing is people in my kitchen in my way that are not there to be helpful. So like get out of my kitchen. I'm literally going to get a shirt that says get out of my kitchen on the front and the back. I should put that in a gear shop. Because I mean it. And people like, you say get out of my kitchen and they laugh. I'm not kidding. Get out of my kitchen. You're in the way. We have a great big bar, and the side that's not in the kitchen, like a great big bar island, the side that's not in the kitchen has stools. That's where you get to go. You can sit on that stool. You can sit over there. There's room for... The the bar overhangs to that side on purpose, so your ass is out of my kitchen. We can talk. You can see. But get out of my kitchen. Okay? (laughs) Anyway, with that in mind, I also woke up thinking about cooking because I think about cooking all the time. I am passionate about cooking. It's one of my true loves in life. And I think one of the reasons maybe I didn't, like, instead of starting a survival podcast, start, like, a cooking podcast, or in some way make it part of my professional life, goes back to a shitty movie that I was forced to watch by a girl I was dating long before I met Dorothy called Hope Floats. It's a terrible movie. Don't watch it. But there was ten seconds of brilliance in it. This dude that was in the movie, and I don't remember the context at all, but he was interested in the... He was the love interest of the chick, or she was... Whatever. It was, you know, the, the hallmark moment, right? And, and and she thinks he's kind of this guy that doesn't really have any, any, any real professional capabilities or anything. He's just kind of a low-rent dude, you know? And she goes to his house, and she sees this gorgeous cabinetry all through the house, you know, and all this gorgeous woodwork in the house. And she's like, well, who did this? He's like, oh, I did it. And she said, well... If you could do this, then why don't you do this as a profession? He says, oh, that, that's great. So ruin the one thing I love by making it something I have to do every day instead of something I do when I want to. And I think that's how I am kind of with cooking. Though I have threatened and even played around with doing some stuff with cooking online. And, and maybe someday I will. If I can figure out how to do it in a way that doesn't make it effort and just makes it helpful. So I'm always thinking about cooking. And what I'm coming at this today with for you Is with a mindset that I want to lead off with, that I'm kind of drawing an analogy. You know, the old thing, you give a man a fish, you feed him for a day. You teach a man to fish, you feed him for his lifetime. I think most people that come across with like cooking blogs, YouTube cooking channels, etc., even the cooking shows on TV to a degree, and it, it may not be intentional, it's maybe they just don't put enough emphasis on it. What they're teaching is recipe, where what needs to be taught is technique. I'm going to, for instance, give you the procedure and recipe for the creamy garlic sauce that I make. That's full-on keto, by the way. And this is a recipe. When you give it to somebody, like, oh, well, there's butter in there. No, there's not. There sort of is, but there isn't. It'll make sense when I explain it. But I can give you every ingredient to that and say, go forth and make it. And it will not work. It will not come out right. I'm going to tell you how to do it today, and the how is more important than the what. So what I said is, uh, teach a man how to cook a fish, not what to cook it with. How do you cook a fish, right? If you want a fish to have a, a, a crispy skin, we got to start off with don't take the skin off the fish. But then, do we cut in the skin? It depends on what kind of fish it is. What what are we trying to do? Are we going to cook the fish whole? Are we cooking a fillet? And I'm not going to get into cooking fish today really at all. I'm just kind of making a point that there is so much to what you're trying to accomplish. It's based on technique. Cook a fish. Is it salmon? I'm going to handle salmon a lot differently than a piece of haddock. Which I'm going to handle a lot differently than a piece of steelhead trout. Which I'm going to sort of handle like the salmon but not exactly. Because they're similar but not the same. What am I going to do with a piece of ahi tuna? I'm probably not going to apply heat to it at all. I'm probably going to serve it raw. But if you want it cooked because you feel that you need it, I'm probably going to sear it. It's going to be rare in the middle. If you don't like it, leave my house. Get out of my kitchen. Get out of my house. It's all different. And it's based on you. And I'm not right. It's, it's knowing all these techniques and possibilities so that you can make the food the way that you and your family love it. And I want to kind of come out of the gate with that as well, that I'm not saying anybody's wrong for doing things differently than I do. I'm saying if you want the kind of results I get in the way that I get them, if you stray from what I'm talking about today, you won't. And what you make might be great, and you might like it. But cooking is an exploration. It's one of the reasons that I love it so much. And and what I mean by that is I, I often say things like, you should learn at least one new thing every day. I think you could learn one new thing about cooking every day and live to be 100 years old and never run out of new things to learn. That's one of the reasons I love it so much, because there's always something new to learn, always something new to be exposed to. Even if you don't care for it or like it or don't want to do it that way, the fact that you know it is valuable. Here's an example, and this was very valuable to me, and I've actually changed what I do now. I made my first deer sausage with my uncle, my dad's younger brother, when I was 12 years old. So I've been making sausage since I was 12 years old. And when I made it and realized that I could make sausage, I was like, this is a new superpower. I didn't know I could make sausage. This is awesome. We made deer sausage. 20% pork added to it. There was a coriander, salt, pepper, basic deer sausage. And it was delicious. Nothing at all wrong with it. But how did I make it? Well, we ground the pork and we ground the deer. Mistake number one. Instead of grinding them together and beginning the mixing process. Then we added the seasoning. Then we mixed the sausage. And we had to mix the sausage until it emulsified. Meaning the fat and protein began to bind. Which is not a bad thing. Sometimes you want to do that with sausage. But not always. But that was the... And then we let it sit. And then we stuffed it. So, last year... I picked, I was watching this guy, Scott Ray. I really like him. He's doing a sausage masterclass for free on his YouTube channel. And when he made sausage, he cubed up all the meat, threw all the meat together in a bin, threw all the seasoning on the meat, and then put the tub in the refrigerator to let the flavoring bind in with the meat before he ground it. Did that for a day, then he ground the meat. And I went, bloop, light bulb. And so for the last two years when I've made sausage, I've done exactly that, including things like jalapeno and garlic, which I love to put in sausage. I will dice up all my jalapeno and garlic, and I will put it in the tub with all the meat. And if I'm doing a pork mixture with, let's say, venison or a pork-beef mixture or something like that, all the meat goes together. If I'm adding bacon, then the bacon goes into the tub, and the meat gets roughly mixed about before it gets ground. All the seasoning goes in. It sits on the meat. The meat sits in the refrigerator. I generally allow that process to take 48 hours of a cure period. Then it goes in the freezer for a few hours, and then I grind it. And then I do whatever mixing's left. And this lets me do a couple things. One, I like coarse ground sausage. I don't like fine ground sausage. And I kind of like to have like the meat-fat separation, kind of like a kielbasa. And so I can do that. If I want an emulsified sausage, I can certainly mix it longer to get where... What'll happen is the fat begins... This is how you'll know. When the fat begins to coat your fingers, you'll have that bound to that bound type of sausage. But it's Now I have the option, but no matter which one I'm doing, the mixing is less work. And when you've just ground the meat that was frozen and you're mixing it, your hands are freaking aching from cold. So I I've been making sausage since I was 12. I'm 50. That's... 38 freaking years, and I learned this technique two years ago by watching a YouTube video. So if I can learn something about something that I'm not only passionate about, cooking, but a subset of it, sausage making, that I'm really passionate about, then anybody can continuously learn all the time. And that's where I'm coming at with this today. So let's start off with really something very simple that I think is something like if we're going to have public school, cooking should be part of it. And one of the most basic things you can teach a person that gives them a dramatic amount of self-sufficiency and ability to stretch dollars of basic process for making soup. So I'm, I'm going to give you a very cut-down basic process because I've got a lot to cover today. But And I'm coming at this from... Not, I have a chicken that is not cooked, and it's in the refrigerator, and it's ready to go, and I'm going to part it out, and I'm going to make chicken soup. I'm coming at this from, I have a protein left over from a meal. Could be chicken, could be beef, could be pork, could be a little bit of both, chicken and pork, or chicken and beef, right? And I, 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 I need to make a lunch, I need to make a second meal from it, it's already cooked, And I don't want it to take, you know, like Sunday soup that starts in the morning and it's ready to eat at dinner time. I want to make soup that I can sit down a half hour after I start, and I can eat a soup. But I don't want it to taste like something that came out of a Campbell's can. I want an authentically cooked soup. Here's the basics for this. We're going to develop a base, a sofrito, a mirpaa, a sofrito, right? A holy trinity. Uh, th- there's all these different versions of putting uh, aromatics together. And there's subtle little differences that change a thing from one to the other, like a battuto. is basically, some would say it's a mirepaw with garlic, and some would say it's a mirepaw with garlic and parsley, and it's the base of real Italian cooking. I mean, th- there's all these, and, and this is the thing that you realize, right? When you see a thing with slight changes, but it's kind of consistent across multiple cooking uh, disciplines, or multiple ethnic uh, disciplines, or multiple nations, or regions, or what have you, like a sofrito, mirepoix, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. then it's probably something you should learn how to do, and you should learn how to do it in a way that makes you happy. So a, a classic mirepoix is equal amounts of carrots, celery, and onion, the Holy Trinity, which is kind of, we take that and we move it into the world of like, you know, Southern Louisiana Cajun cooking, they call it the Holy Trinity. It's peppers and uh, onions and, and celery. So we, we nix the carrots and swap them out for, for bell pepper. Sofritos, etc. You can look up different versions of this, but we're going to make something. So, we're going to go down with some fat. So, either a really healthy oil like an olive oil uh, or an avocado oil, or my preference would be like chicken fat or beef tallow or something like that. And we can think about what we're making if we want to do a contrast of the flavor or not. But you're not going to get that much flavor from the fat anyway. The flavor is really going to be developed by cooking down the vegetables. So we're going to cook down those vegetables so they're soft. The longer we cook them and the slower we cook them and the more time we take and the more brown we develop on them, especially the onions, the more sweetness and more flavor we're going to pull out of them. And the more they're going to become the base of the soup better than things floating in the soup. But we're going to make that. We're going to add a liquid. We're going to deglaze. And we're probably, with a quick soup, we're not going to have time to really develop flavor from the meat, the bone, and make our own stock, we're going to use something like a chicken stock, a beef stock, a pork stock, whatever it is that we're cooking, whatever we think will go nicely with it. And we're going to develop flavors as we go. And we're going to do that by timing the adding of the ingredients. So if I'm adding different ingredients, and I have meat that is already really tender, and it doesn't really need to be cooked very long, Maybe I'm slicing up some sausage. It doesn't really need anything other than to be heated through. I'm going to probably, if I'm adding any vegetables or potatoes or something like that, I'm going to add those, and I'm going to cook them till soft, and I'm going to finish with that meat. If I'm using something like a green in my soup, unless I want it for some reason to kind of disappear into the background, I'm going to add that right at the end. I might not even add it at all. I might put it in the bowl. So, like, a thing that I like to do with leftover soups often is incorporate something with a little bit of a sharp bite to it, like an arugula, right? And so what I'll do with that is arugula doesn't need much at all, so I will put the arugula in the bowl and ladle the soup over it. And that way it's kind of whole. Or if I'm using a squash, like a zucchini, I don't want that in there the entire time. So I'm not going to tell you what order to put things in or how to make a soup, or, you know, what ingredients or what recipe to use for a soup today. I'm talking about the technique adding those ingredients at the right time based on what you're trying to achieve and then taste along the way and don't be afraid of salt and if you can do what I just said then you can go into somebody's refrigerator and you can say oh look, there's the end of a piece of pork tenderloin and I can turn that into a soup and you might go a little bit Mesoamerican with it and bring in some corn right? And kind of go in that direction with some peppers. And maybe, even though we're going Mesoamer- you know, we could put a little tomato in there. And, but gee, that would be pretty good. We could move it more toward the southwestern by bringing in, like, some black bean, bringing a little chili powder in. Like, there's any way you can take that. There's a hundred ways you can take it. We could take that. We can go toward, like, the world of green curries and make a green pork curry soup. All right? I mean. It, it, it's unlimited. And it's why it's such a powerful thing. So one of the ways that I got really good at doing this, when I first moved to Texas after I got out of the Army, I was pretty broke. I worked in a warehouse packing boxes for $7 an hour, seven fifty an hour, I think. And so you don't have a lot of extra money when you're living that way. So one of the things I, I would do is I would go to the supermarket, and what I would buy is big old uh, roaster chickens. like Not really like your, your your smaller, classic, deliciously roasted. More like your stewing hen sized birds. And then I would part those out and I would make three or four meals from one chicken and the last thing that would happen to that chicken is I would use it to make a soup and I started to realize, you know, the whole concept of like a, a hunter's soup or a hunter's stew where you're using multiple leftover meats kind of in the world of a jambalaya but we're doing soup. Like, hey, look, I have this piece of you know beef, and that actually does go good with chicken. Or I have some leftover sauces. Let me thinly slice that, brown it, and add it to the soup at the end. And I ate really good for very little money. Moving on. I want to talk about that garlic cream sauce now. I don't think there is a thing I can teach you to make that will do more for you. It's like, wow, I have a new thing that I can cook now. That will also drive home technique over recipe more than it's ex- trying to explain this. And I really want to do a video on this someday, but it's not necessary. I actually got this rest the, the base of this recipe from like a one-minute long TikTok video my wife found, and then I played with it and made it my own. Okay? And so if I can do it with a one minute video, you can definitely do it with what I'm about to give you. So this is a onion and garlic cream sauce, and it needs to be cooked till it is thick. And so it coats the food that it's on. It doesn't need to be water-like. It needs to carry flavor heavily, and it's going to have a buttery consistency to it, even though there's no butter in it, because there is cream. And for the amount of time we're going to cook the cream, some of the cream is actually going to somewhat become like butter because of the agitation it will experience during the whole thing. But it all starts out, and this is a double batch, and I recommend a double batch because it's so good you'll want some extra. You can scale up and down, but if you start scaling up, it gets more and more complicated to do the reduction. Okay? So you can cut it in half, and again, it's, it's much quicker to do a half batch. You want a very large surface area pan to do this with, it will be much quicker because of the reduction. If you have a small sauce pot that has plenty of room for the ingredients, but it's relatively small in diameter, it's going to take a lot longer to get the same results. It's okay? so like a sauce pan would be the way to go, or a saussier. So we're going to take one white onion. We're going to finely chop it, and we're going to saute it in some form of fat. Now, one way we can do this is if we were doing this with chicken, for instance, we could take skin on chicken thigh, sear the chicken thigh skin side down, then give it a little sear on the back side, season it however you wanted to, Reserve it to the side so it's not done, and we can finish it in the oven with the sauce on it. Really great way to go. But let's say we're not going to do that. Let's say we're making the sauce so we have it for a couple different meals. Well, we can use chicken fat. We can use pork fat. We can use beef tallow. We can use olive oil. We can use avocado oil. If you use chitty seed oil, you can use that. You have some fat goes into the pan with your onions, and you're going to saute those slowly and gently, so like a medium heat. Until they go first clear and then begin to brown. One large onion sauteed until it starts to brown. When it starts to brown, it's developing caramelization in the sugars in the onion. We're going to then add 5 to 10 cloves of garlic. However much you want. But if I say 5, I'm talking I got lucky and I got 5 great big cloves. Normal sized cloves, I'm going to go up to about 10. I'm going to use almost all of a whole head of garlic. Chopped up fine. I'm going to put that in. Why did I put the onions in before the garlic? Because if I cook the garlic as long as the onions need to cook, since the garlics have more sugar and less water, they will scorch and burn. So I only want to saute that garlic with the onions for 5 to 10 minutes, depending on how it goes. I'm going to use my eyes here. If that garlic starts to over-darken even the slightest bit, I'm going to call it done. Okay? I'm now going to add... Two cups of chicken stock or chicken bone broth, and I'm going to use that and I'm going to deglaze with it. And once I get it up to temperature so it's steaming hot and it'll dissolve nicely for me, I'm going to add one tablespoon of better than bullion chicken flavor base. I'm going to really put a lot of flavor into this, and that is one of my cheat hacks. It's better than bullion, and they've come up with some new ones. I haven't tried them yet, but they have like an Italian sofrito and stuff like that. Like they're pl- and this is, this is where we're going into the world of chefy stuff that gets done in restaurants that you never know about. They use these flavor bases all the time. They just, you know, they have uh, their own product for that. They generally don't use something like a better than bullies, but it's pretty much the same thing. And we're gonna we're gonna dissolve that into it, and we're gonna and we're gonna get it to a simmer, which means we're gonna get it to boil just barely. And it can boil a little bit hard for a couple seconds. We're gonna back that heat down, and we're gonna bring it to a bare simmer, meaning it is bubbling barely. That's what a bare simmer is. A bare simmer is not rapidly heavily boiling. We want it to take time here. Again, this is why that a a more a larger surface area will reduce faster. We want to reduce this by 50% of the volume. And I don't know if this is the right term. It's a a term I made up. I call it a staged reduction. Because we're going to be doing two reductions at two different times with this. So first we reduce the, the broth volume by half. That's going to concentrate the flavor. When you do that, the best way I have found to know you're halfway is we use as, you know, bag clips, chip clips, call them you want, the big metal clips that people use for paperwork. Where you big, It's like black, and it's got silver where the handles are, and you put that clip on there. So I just take one of those, and I clip it to the spoon that I'm stirring everything with. I use a wooden spoon when I make this. And actually more like a flat, wooden spatula-type thing. And I set that right at the surface of where the the the, the liquid is on the spoon because you can move it so easily. Some people use rubber bands for this. I used to do that. The rubber band gets old, it falls apart, and falls into your food, and I, I just don't like that. So I use the metal clip. And then I, I you know you keep stirring. You have to keep an eye on this. This is not a set it forget it walk away dish. And when you're down to half of the volume, now we're going to add um, an entire quart of heavy cream. Yes, an entire quart. 32 ounces it just got interesting now you have to pay attention to what you're doing you need to bring that back up to a simmer as you do that whenever you add that much dairy whether it's milk cream etc to a pot it's gonna form kind of like a skin and it will go from I don't think it's gonna boil anytime soon to oh my god it's gonna boil over really really fast so you keep an eye on this and as you get to that break point you're stirring and you're reducing temperature one of the things you can do, leave a little bit of cream in the, in, the, in, in the jug that's still cold, a couple ounces. If it starts to boil too fast and you have an electric stove, it takes longer to kill that heat. D- d- dump that in. Add a little bit of stock. Anything that will break that till you get it to a simmer. You can also just pick the pot up off the burner, you electric stove owners, right? And, and, and that will help quell that from boiling over on you. So leave some headroom. Take your time getting there. Now, readjust your little clip on your spoon, however you're using it, and reduce it by half again. You may ask yourself, why don't you just put the cream and the broth in and do a single reduction by, you know, what? A th- to Two-thirds. It won't work. It's totally different. It's not the same. It won't come out the same. Trust me. You're reducing the broth by half then you're bringing the total volume back up and you're reducing by half again you're reducing the cream by half you're reducing the broth to a quarter of its original volume when you do the math on this it's going to get very thick and this is something you should do to learn the value of technique and to learn the value of reductions put a little bit of this, a couple tablespoons in a little cup or a bowl or something like that something you can taste it with later okay Before you reduce the cream. So you've you've reduced the broth on the first stage reduction. You've added the cream. You've stirred it all together. You've got it up to a simmer. Take some and reserve it. Do your reduction. And when you're done with your reduction, taste them side by side. You don't really need anything else to flavor this. But what I usually do, I'm usually going kind of toward the Italian Mediterranean side with most of the stuff I cook this with. I'm going to, at the end of this, add some thyme and rosemary. And I'm gonna take dry thyme and dry a rosemary and I'm gonna the thyme I'll just throw in there the rosemary. I'm gonna take it, I'm gonna put it in my mortar and pestle, and I'm gonna kinda of grind it till it's like not a powder, but not whole needles. I'm gonna put that in there, I'm gonna let that kind of soak through. I'll tell you another thing that's also really delicious in this is dill seed. And you can either crack that or leave it whole. Not dill seed, god ah, dill, don't do dill. Dill does not go in this. I'm sorry, fennel. I don't know why I said dill. Fennel, rosemary, and thyme excellent in this and you want to then decide what you want to do with it later and like I said there's a lot of ways to to, to use this and understand that you can take it in any real direction you want I would just make it very basic the first time and then figure out what you want to do with it there's not much this stuff's not good on the the day I made it the first time before we even fully perfected it my wife said this would be good on a napkin I mean that—that's how like she, she'll like. Hey, we're out of that. Do you you want to make some more? Do you want to make some more? She likes it just on steak. We do steak all the time. We do ribeye, strip steaks, et cetera. Steak, cauliflower, rice, and this sauce, and she's in hog heaven with it. Um, like I said, it was originally developed to finish on chicken in the oven, and this is a fantastic way to use it. It will brown more and thicken more. So what you do is you take your chicken, you put it in whatever pan you're going to throw into the oven good uh, carbon steel sauté pan would do all of it, right? Take the chicken and ladle it over the chicken and bake the chicken to finish the chicken. And it will get this darker brown, kind of caramelized color going on and develop even richer flavors. Cauliflower rice. I did this sauce for my friend David when he came over one day. And so I made the sauce. I made a double batch so that there would be half of it to reserve away for Dorothy. I, and then, then this is as simple as it gets. I buy cauliflower rice from Costco. You get a bag of four individual bags inside the big bag. And one of the individual bags is... Dorothy and I will never finish that in a meal. It'll be like... Like we'll get a full portion for two and then a small portion for two the next time we use it or one of us will eat it for lunch with something left over. And so I took a bag of that cauliflower rice and I threw it on my flat top, my... my um. Uh, Blackstone griddle and cauliflower rice you gotta cook the stink out of it cauliflower stink is awful so you cook all the extra moisture out of it when I do it in a pan I just throw a whole stick of butter in with it when I do it on the flat top because you can get runoff I cook the rice till so it's almost done And then I take a a whole stick of butter and just set it right in the middle of it and kind of cook it into the rice. And get it just a little bit brown. Just start to char it just a little bit on the outside. And then I took, what do you hear this? I took a bag of crawfish tails that I bought from Albertsons. And they were from Louisiana, not Chinese ones. And they were like 8 bucks for a pound. I cut that open and I threw it on the flat top and hit it with a little bit of olive oil. And just got them warmed through, and then I mixed the rice and the crawfish together, pulled it, and served it with that sauce. Holy crap. It was kind of sort of like heading toward like a dirty rice dish that you'd get in... I, I don't even know how to describe it, but it was amazing. And you could certainly up that factor with a little bit of jalapeno or something like that, a little bit of a spice. But the big thing I want you to take away from taking that long to explain how to make this dish is, if I said... Here's your ingredients, one large onion, five garlic cloves, two cups of chicken stock, one uh, 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 what, quart of heavy cream, and that's what I said that you make it with. You're not going to end up with that result, and if I gave you half ass instructions, you're not going to end up with the right result. And now you can also take it, and what else can you do with it? It's not a mother sauce. But there's five mother sauces in, in French cooking, and, and and I'd like to think of this. This is almost like it's a a new mother, like a sixth mother sauce, and now we can do other things with it. Here's one of the things I've done with it. This is so freaking amazing. You take and you know you take as much as you want. Let's say half of what we just made. You add that to a little sauce pot because pot, maybe you've reserved it. You put it in the refrigerator. You get it back out. You heat it up. And into about that much, you would add between a half a cup to a full cup of really amazing, high-quality uh, hard cheese, like a, a Pecorino uh, Romano or a Parmigiano uh, Reggiano, like a Parmesan, a, a Pecorino a Romano cheese, right? And there's tons of, like, by the way, there's tons of other hard Italian cheeses that we're not as familiar with, totally worth learning about in different flavors and profiles. So you, you just... Get that hot to where it's steaming hot, and you slowly sprinkle that in, and you keep stirring it. And I said, you know, half a cup to a cup. I don't know. I don't know how much you reduced it. I don't know how much you had left over. I, I don't know if you're making the whole batch into this, right? So what you're doing is you're adding the cheese, and you're judging it, and you're tasting it as you go until you get what you want. It'll get thicker from the cheese. It'll get saltier from the cheese, so easy on the salt if you're going to do this. Um, always easy on the salt with this dish because that tablespoon of Better Than Bullion has a ton of salt in it and how much salt is in your broth. You can always add more salt. You can't take it out. So when you finish it, if you taste it and you think it's under-seasoned, then add salt, right? So add your cheese. Then do something like this. Take... You can use chicken breast for this. I prefer thigh. Take a boneless chicken thigh, pound it out, dredge it in panko breadcrumbs that are made from uh pork rinds which we'll talk about a little bit later slightly sauté those so that they start to crisp up lay them on a on a, a sheet pan right spoon this over them finish it in the oven and I don't even know what you'd call that it's kind of like a chicken parmesan but it's made with a white sauce instead of a red sauce it's kind of like a schnitzel but it's not i it doesn't matter what it is It's freaking delicious. Be fearless with some of this stuff. Now, let me give you a whole bunch of my hacks, techniques, and things like that. This is one I talked about years ago. Everybody that's ever tried this loves it. If you still eat rice, and you're trying to make really good rice, stop trying to make really good rice and make really good rice. What the hell does that mean, Jack? Just take the rice, put it into a pot of water, bring it to a boil. Well, that's what you're supposed to do, right? Not this, you know, one cup of this... Put way more water in there than you think you need. There's some people gonna have they're gonna lose their minds, but if you try it, you'll see what I'm saying works. So you put you cook it like pasta. Boil it in water way more than it needs. The rice is intelligent. It knows how much water to take in. Taste it with a fork until it's done to your liking. Right? When it's done to your liking, dump it in a colander and strain it off. That's it. And before you do that, rinse your rice and get the extra starch off of it. Then use your rice however you want to. Like, if you're going to do it with, like, let's say that I just talked about all this using cauliflower rice. You're like, screw that, Jack. I'm not keto. That sauce I just told you how to make, that on regular rice with whatever, okay, that's going to be good. But you can do a fried rice, crusty rice, whatever you're trying to do with your rice, you just use it from there. And if you want to take it up a notch, you can infuse your rice with flavor that way. So that better than bullion stuff? Make... Basically a pot of chicken broth out of your Better Than Bullion with your rice. And when your rice is absorbing water, it will absorb the flavor. And you can put all kinds of flavor into your rice by basically making a broth or a tea with herbs and cooking your rice and simmering your rice in that. Really simple. Next up, I'm going to give you a short order cook trick for making a perfect over easy egg without flipping it. Now, some people are very aware of you're making an egg, you have it in a pan, you have a good amount of fat in there, let's say some baking grease, you tilt the pan and you spoon the grease over the egg, that's all good and well, and that works. But you don't always have that much fat in a pan, you don't always want to do that, and there's a really easy way that actually will make your over-easy even a little over-easier than spooning a hot fat across it. And it's a short order cook trick that's usually used to melt cheese. So you have your burger on your flat-top griddle or your fry pan or whatever. You're cooking your burger, you throw a piece of cheese on it, and you want that cheese really melted. So what you do is put a couple dribbles of water, maybe a half ounce of water in the pan, and you throw a cover over the burger, and the steam goes up in the air. since the steam is over 200 degrees, 200, you know, 212 degrees plus, under that cover, it melts the cheese from above really, really fast. Have you ever tried to do an... A, a, a sunny side up egg where you don't want to flip it. And one of the things you have a problem with, you can do it, but it takes a little bit of finesse, is how do I keep the egg runny and not have runny whites? Because runny whites are nasty. Well, what you do is you cook the egg till it's almost done, but the yolk is still beautiful. You throw the water down and you cover the egg. And if you, I put up a picture last week on we, and Twitter and what have you, of eggs done exactly that way, sitting over top of rattlesnake and rabbit sauces with blue cheese crumbles on arugula. That was my breakfast. Huh? It didn't take 15 minutes to make it either, by the way, guys. Right? I did say rattlesnake and rabbit sausage. I did. And that's exactly how those eggs were done. And if you look at that picture, the way that you get that beautiful, kind of it looks like over easy, but it you could tell it wasn't flipped, that's how you do that. And it is such a great way, because there is something elegant to me about a perfectly cooked runny yolk egg over a lot of things like a burger it's just del- it's so we so underuse eggs in America and that's because we're spoiled and we have access to so much food and we don't really value the protein and fat content of eggs as much as we used to And and that's a great way to do that and that trick can be used in a variety of ways Melting cheese, like I said, anything where you want to apply heat above something that's in a frying situation or sautéing situation, that quick steam will go through and, and cook much faster or finish much faster. Um, next, this is a real simple one, but I, mean, I didn't learn this till probably 15 years ago. You want to sear on meat? That meat needs to be freaking dry. When I go to sear a steak... You know, I season it however salted, I let it dry, brine, sit in this, whatever. But when I go to put that onto a flat-top griddle, a grill, a frying pan, I don't care what, I literally take paper towel and I dry that meat so it's as dry as it can be. And this is why pre-salting and dry-brining, whether you're using different herbs and stuff or just salt with steak or anything you want to sear is a great idea because it pulls moisture out. Then the salt and the moisture end up going back into the meat. I'm sorry. The salt goes in the meat, moisture comes out and then moisture goes back in and you end up with a fairly dry surface, especially if you dry it after that. And if you do that and add no fat to your pan, none at the most, a little drizzle, but you really don't need any fat when you're cooking something that has fat in it, especially initially for that first sear point, If you have well-seasoned cookware and you're using the appropriate cookware, you've got your temperature right. So dry your frickin' meat before you sear it. Some things probably need a little bit of fat, like white meat chicken is not going to do well without a little bit of fat added. But very small amounts, when you have moisture especially water. When I say moisture, I mean water. And you haven't dried that meat well and you put that meat down on that beautiful hot surface. What does what what happens to the moisture? It turns to steam. What are you doing? You're basically steaming, boiling the meat. You don't get good sears that way, okay? Another thing with getting a good sear is make sure that if the meat is irregular that you correct it as best you can. So sometimes you'll get a steak that has like a dent in it or whatever. You might want to play with that a little bit kind of push it down, what have you. With steak, you don't really want to beat a steak, in my opinion. Uh, sometimes you're just going to have areas of it that aren't going to sear, or what you can do is if you know there's a an irregularity from above, you can apply a little bit of pressure to get that area to sear so it looks nice and you develop that flavor. By the way, when you sear meat, you are not sealing in juices. That does not work. It does not work. It does not work. That's why you take that beautiful steak off the griddle or the grill or whatever, and you set it on a cutting board, and you see juice pour out of it. We sear meat for flavor development, not to seal in juices. It is a myth. Also, when you take a piece of meat off of a hot griddle or grill or pan and you set it down, the juice does never, I don't care what they say on TV, it does not go back down inside. Once it comes out, it's out. It's gone. That's why we need to rest it. You rest it. Because if you cut it hot, it will drop more juice out of it than if you let it cool before you slice into it. You see how that works? It works through viscosity. Think about, just take it to an extreme. You go get a, 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 a bottle of uh, olive oil, and you set it in the sun. You shouldn't do this, but you do. And you leave it get really, really warm, like a middle of a summer's day, and you go pour that oil. It's going to be very thin. It's going to pour very quickly you keep it like it belongs in a pantry dark cool location it pours like oil it pours easily but it's much thicker you throw it in the refrigerator it will damn near get into a solid right so the hotter the thinner right the more viscosity the faster it runs okay next up let's talk about um, finishing those steaks one of the most beautiful ways to finish a steak is with a knob of butter so it's still in the pan it's not quite ready to come out of the pan yet Take a tablespoon or a teaspoon of butter, put it on the top. So flip the steak so the side that was down is up now. Okay? So that's really hot now. We throw the butter on it. It'll start to melt into the steak. It'll start to come off the sides of the steak. We're we'll going to flip it back over, coat it with both sides to get some butter on it, start to develop it's like a second sear. And if it's a really thick piece of meat and we're not in danger of overcooking it, we could even like tilt the pan and then spoon that butter over that steak another little trick not in my notes but dressing a board with your steak so we take something like some rosemary and some thyme and some uh, oregano would be great like fresh whole fronds of, so it's not just little leaves like it's like, like a, a stem of rosemary a stem of thyme and a stem of oregano with the leaves on it we put that on the board and we set that steak on top of them and that juice that pours out we let it pour over those herbs, move the steak to the side when you're about ready to carve it and kind of move the herbs through all that liquid and then slice your steak and serve it sliced. But bring that steak back through that liquid that has marinated with those herbs underneath the warm steak. It's simple. You can even serve it on the board with the steak sliced on the bias, which means kind of on an angle in the center of the board with the herbs now back over top of it. Use the herbs like a paintbrush go into the pan with those herbs, and then kind of smear that over your steak. Lots of ways to do that. Steak doesn't always have to be served a whole steak sitting on a plate by itself. We can serve it on a board, pre-sliced, and people take what they want, including then if, if we've maybe cooked some a little more than others, and people can see and they can take the more done or less done version that they want. If you want steak well done, you'll have to go to somebody's house other than mine. I don't do well done steaks. Um, here's, an, here's another one. Um, the pork panko breadcrumbs that I've talked about before. They're fantastic. So it's just basically ground up pork rinds. But one of the things you'll find with them is they have a problem staying stuck, especially to certain things. And when we do a dredge for a, a fried, like a deep fried thing, generally what you do is you go into flour, then you go into egg, then you go into your crumb mixture. Sometimes you then go back into the egg and back into the crumb again. But you go into the flour just with the moisture of the object, right? Like it's already got some mo- onion rings, there's moisture in the onion. Uh, any meat, there's gonna be some moisture on the meat that's gonna make that flour stick. And that flour helps the binder. But, of course, if we're doing the panko and we're trying to be keto, we don't want to use flour because that kind of negates the whole keto point, right? So what you do is you use either coconut flour or like a milk whey protein powder as your flour just for that first very light coating to help bind. The other thing that you can do that really um, makes this work, and this is true – of any breading, whether you're keto and using the panko or using regular panko or cracker meal or Italian breadcrumbs or whatever you're using. If you're doing a batter, like a deep batter, then like you're going to have to batter it and put it in the fryer. That's, that's a different, like a tempura or anything like that, or your classic fish and chips batter. But if you're doing a crumb, like again a panko, a cracker meal, whatever, bread your food in the morning, like before you go to work or what have you. Lay it on a single layer on a plate or two in the refrigerator. Leave it sit there all day. And then fry it. You'll find your adhesion goes way up. Sometimes, like if I do that with fried fish or whatever, like your, you know, whatever you've used, like I'll use buttermilk sometimes, etc., will actually begin to soak through, and you'll see like it's kind of wet looking. And so you reserve your crumb mixture. You can even give it a second... Roll in the crumb before you put it in, in into the fryer or into the the fry pan or what have you. Another thing that really helps, and you'll notice that like so many things that bars s- serve that are deep fried, one of the reasons that they they serve that product is if you're going to deep fry something, it cooks very quickly, including all the way through, even if it was frozen. So a bar that's serving onion rings, a bar that's serving fried chicken tenders, a bar that's serving any of your classic goes good with a beer fried foods at a bowling alley. Almost inevitably there's not a cook back there dredging and frying, they're going into a deep freezer, turkey, taking out five chicken tenders and throwing them down in a basket. You can do that too. Not only is it convenient, it actually really helps the binder stay bound up. So we're working and trying to finalize our recipe for pork panko onion rings. And that's one of the techniques we're playing with. And we haven't quite got it perfect yet. But one way to keep that binder on there more is go ahead and fry it. And then that way, you can take it out and use it. So you can take a Saturday, make a bunch of them up, and you can pull out four or five a person and make them to go as a side dish with a dinner. And you could do that, again, whether you're doing keto like we're doing or using regular any kind of old old, uh, breading. Next, Um, I'm going to give you a very simple technique for making roasted potatoes. And this is fantastic for your holiday meal coming up for Christmas if you want to try this. You get fingerling potatoes. So you should know what those are, or any small roaster potato. But the fingerling potatoes work really great for this. And your larger ones, just cut them in half long ways. And your smaller ones, just leave them whole. Hit them with salt and a fat. And like bacon fat is fantastic for this. And roast them in your oven about 350 degrees until they are, and when I say roast, I mean bake. Your setting is bake for this. 350 degrees. Put them in a single layer. Aluminum foil on a sheet. Pan's a great way to go. Makes cleanup easy. Cook them until they're fork soft. Okay? So, like, maybe you wouldn't eat them yet. They still have a little tiny bit of raw potato flavor, but when you stick a fork in them, it goes in pretty easily. Take them out of the oven, set them up on top of the oven or on a cutting board somewhere off to the side, and let them cool to room temperature. Okay? Now, take them and take, like, a spatula and mash them down about halfway. So, if it was a... Half inch thick piece of potato, you squish it down till about a quarter inch thick. Just about halfway. You want the edges to kind of puff out, like when you push in on a baked potato and it poofs out. Like, just begin to poof out so there's rough edges sticking out the side of the potato. Hit it with a little more of your fat. Then season it as far as herbage, however you want to go. And rosemary is divine for this. Yes, this is not keto. Sometimes we eat things because we like them. So, like, some some rosemary and thyme just goes perfect with that. Set your – you can just go back in on bake, but if you have a convection roast or convection bake setting, more like turning your oven into an air fryer, set it to that and put it back in there. Turn the light on because you don't want to open it any more than you have to once you're cooking something in the oven. When the edges begin to just brown, pull them. And it's like half-baked potato, half-french fry, and it's as good as it sounds. And it is one of the best things you can, and it is so simple. And you see, there's there's not a lot of recipe there, is there? There's potatoes, there's some form of fat, again, bacon is good, pork tallow, beef tallow is good, olive oil will work, and a little bit of herb action and some salt. That's it. And you make that, or you just take the potatoes and roast them with salt and, and bacon. They're both good. But one will have people going, how did you do this? And another will have people going, oh, that was good. Now, you do a really great gravy with that. And instead of drenching that, drizzle the gravy as an accoutrement, right? You're not going to cover it because then you're going to cover up all that flavor just a little bit so it seeps into those places where it's beginning to crunch up. you want to know what else you can do with it? You're going to crunch? You do everything I said, but it doesn't go back in the oven. You throw it in a fryer for a couple seconds, and you finish it in the fryer. You can do that, too, if you really want to. And that really will be like a, a poofed-out French fry. That <laughs> Those are pretty freaking amazing uh, as well. Um, on that note, another thing that we talk about is twice-fried fries. We hear that a lot. If you're going to make fries, and I don't care if they're sweet potato or regular potato, cut your fries, fry them till they're just about done, take them out. This is the same basic... Chemical reasoning here with starch and how you do it. Let it cool. Let them cool until they are room temperature or cooler. And then fry them a second time. It's, it, one french fries, that's eh, a french fry. How do you complain? The other french are like, oh my god. Especially sweet potato fries when you do this. Especially if you do the, uh, the Japanese purple skin sweet potatoes. It's like a white flesh sweet potato. It's a white buttery color flesh sweet potato. They're like pillows. And they're they're freaking delicious if you do that with them. Uh, next, sous vide. I'm not going to get that much into sous vide today, but one of the greatest things in the world is a soft boiled egg. The the white is perfectly done. The yolk is not really runny, but it's soft and it's a bright yellow instead of that faded yellow when they're fully and it's just a little tiny bit runny. I'm not going to give you time and temperature because it's something you're going to have to play with depending on the size of your eggs, your elevation. Uh, your sous vide, how accurate it is, but you can look up some starting points and you can make, you take your sous vide container, you put your sous vide circulator in, you set the temperature that works for you, and you put your eggs in there. And the beauty is, once you get your temperature for your situation right, if you're a few extra moments, if, you know, like you you figure out you need 15 and it's in there 20, it shouldn't matter because the temperature will never get higher than what your setting is. So the temperature, of the yolk will never get higher, so it will never fully set. And, and that is like, it is such a badass chef maneuver to be able to take a perfectly soft-boiled egg like that, cut it in half long-wise, and add it to a meal. And it's so simple, and it's so elevated, and it's so freaking easy. And it's actually a challenge to do when you're cooking that egg in a pot. You have to be very careful about how long, etc. Where with sous vide, it's it, it very easy to do. Uh, next up. When you're making chicken soup or chicken stock, throw half a lemon in it. I'll leave it at that. Why is it so good? I don't know. It doesn't make any sense. Acid often is a good uh, accompaniment to a lot of things. There's something about it, though, that when I started doing that, I've even done like half half a lemon and half an orange. And, And citrus and chicken just really go really well together. Use finishing salts. Um... One of my uh, favorite finishing salts is Maldon, M-A-L-D-O-N salt. It is this really crunchy, crispy, pyramid-shaped flake salt. If you put that in your food when you're cooking it, you're you're spending too much money for salt. But if you put it on the top of something, then it's really delicious, and they make a smoked version. I have links for some of this stuff in the show notes for today. Again, the episode is uh, 3220. So... You take that smoked salt, for instance. So here would be a a fantastic way to put what we've learned together uh, for this. You have some of that garlic cream sauce that I talked about. You take some asparagus. You saute it till it's bright green and just tender enough that it's where you want it to eat it. It's not, like, overcooked. You spoon some of that creamed garlic cream sauce over that asparagus, just a little bit, and then hit it with a smoked Maldon flake salt. And you've just taken something boring like asparagus and you've elevated the shit out of it and you've done it by taking the sauce that you made extra of and had sitting in it and then a little bit of this flake salt on the top of it. What do you saute the asparagus in butter. Butter or ghee. Or bacon fat, right? Or imagine this, we take the the, the asparagus spears, we par-cook a piece of bacon. So you want when you when you do a bacon wrap on something that doesn't take long to cook If you cook the bacon to your liking, what ends up happening is you've overcooked the thing inside it. So what we can do is we par-cook the bacon. And you can use a microwave for this. You can use a frying pan for this. You cook it to where you wouldn't eat it. But you've cooked about one-third of the way toward crispy bacon. You can throw it in hot water and boil it and do this if you want to. You can throw it in the oven on a sheet pan and do this. However you want. Where it's still pliable, it'll still wrap. Let it cool, don't do it when it's hot. then wrap your asparagus spears then then do those in a fry pan or what have you on a flat top, and then take that bacon wrapped asparagus, drizzle that cream sauce, add that smoked meldon and and you you're you're putting something on somebody's plate that will stand up to in my opinion any restaurant that anybody's ever going to go to um one of the things I've picked up from cooking shows, and I have some, some uh, uh, tips on this uh, in a bit about getting the most if you watch cooking shows and not being sucked into drama and bullshit, uh, but Calabrian chili peppers, which is uh, comes from southern Italy, there's three main forms. There's basically, they'll call it a paste, but it's not a paste. In my opinion, it, it doesn't look like a paste to me. It's chopped up cal- Calabrian chilies in a jar with oil. And then there's whole Calabrian chilies in a jar with oil. And then there's dry flake Calabrian chilies. So this is one of those things that, you know, you keep hearing it and you finally cave and you try it. And you're like, oh, wow, I should have done that a long time ago. So all these TV shows, Calabrian chilies, Calabrian chilies, and it's probably Bobby Flay that's made it more famous than anybody else. And I finally like, you know what, I need to buy some of these. So I bought some of the whole ones in oil. I bought some of the chopped up ones in oil. And the truth is there ain't much difference. The one thing I could say, if you get whole ones, if you wanted the flavor and you wanted slight reduction of the heat, because since it's been in a jar with oil that long, the heat spread out and dissipated through the whole thing, right? But if you wanted to slightly reduce the heat that you're getting from it then and have more of the character of the pepper, with a whole one, you can run a knife down it and turn the blade over and scrape the seeds out. Where with the stuff that's already chopped up, that would be really tedious to try to do. Both of those, though, they, there is something about. Yes, there's heat, and it's more heat than you might think. So be be judicious with how much you use. Right, think about it. You can always add more. You can't take it out. But it has a fruitiness and a smokiness that just is not in any other pepper. And I have I've, I've fallen in love with using them, especially in things that are Spanish, uh, Italian type uh, dishes. The flake. Provides plenty of heat, but I don't. I don't personally feel that I get the fruity nature of the pepper in the dried flake. You you, you may differ. So I have links to all three options today from the brand that I have chosen to use. Um, when you're working with meat, you want it as cold as possible, considering what you're doing. So if I had. Um, A a beef loin, like a strip loin whole, and I wanted to cut my own steaks out of it, I'm going to put that in the freezer right before... It's going to be in the refrigerator for a while, and it's going to go to the freezer probably at least an hour before I carve it. I want that meat not frozen, because it's going to make it impossible to cut through. But I want it hard and firm and cold, and I'm going to get much nicer cuts. If I'm going to grind it, I'm going to push it to almost frozen. As long as the pieces, like I talked about putting the chunks together, will come apart... It's not too frozen for a grinder, and you're going to get a much nicer grind. I will even take my grinder. I will take the screw, the plate, and the blade and throw that in the freezer and assemble the grinder right before I get the meat out so everything's cold. I will, If I'm doing a lot of ground meat, I'll have a bowl with some ice sitting there, and you know, about every 10 pounds of meat goes through, I'll take a handful of ice cubes and take a separate bowl so I'm not wetting my meat down, and I'll push those ice cubes through the grinder. To keep the grinder cold, because you just get a lot better uh, out of it. Um, Gochujang, which is a Korean fermented chili paste, is one of my total cheat codes for cooking. I don't generally use it like straight on something. It's very thick. It's got a lot of sugar in it, so you want to limit how much of it you use. And because of that, it will burn. Uh, but like diluting it with oil, for instance, and then rubbing a fish, like something that people say has no flavor like tilapia. So you take a tilapia, whole head on tilapia, gutted, obviously. You cut three hashes into the skin on both sides. You mix gochijan with oil until they kind of cut the thickness of the, 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 the gochijan by about down to a third of what it is as a paste. You salt that fish and you rub that Gochujang oil into that And then you cook that on the grill Straight on the grill And you will never tell me again That tilapia has no flavor You just didn't know how to cook it Now you do That's one example It's also amazing in mayonnaise So you take mayo About two thirds mayo to one third gochijan, Gochujang You mix that up And that's good on everything You know sweet potato fries? Doesn't sound like sweet potato fries and mayonnaise Ugh, no Yeah, try it that way Holy crap, is it good. We make sweet potato fries a few times a year. They're kind of a treat from the sweet potatoes from the garden, and we always do that, and my wife loves them. I also do 50% pork, 50% uh, venison meatballs that I flavor with gochijan. Those are fantastic as well. Um, On that, learn to make your own mayo. I'm not going to tell you how to make mayo today, but there's tons of resources, and you can make mayo using whole eggs, You can make mayo using just yolks. You can go a couple different ways. But then also, even if you don't make your own mayo, learn to make aiolis. What I just described really is an aioli. All an aioli is is a flavored mayo. Uh, The Mark Sesson's Primal uh, Avocado Mayo, that's my favorite mayo to buy off the shelf. It's really delicious, and it's very healthy compared to Hellman's, etc., don't buy it at the grocery store if you don't have to. It's incredibly expensive there. Like a little bitty jar of it is like $9. So you're like, I can't afford it. I understand. You go to Costco, a great big jar of it is like $9. In fact, a great two great big jars of it wrapped together, I think, are like 11 So it is a fraction of a fraction of the cost of buying it at the store. A little extra hack there. Um, cold Smoke and Sous Vide... Large roasts of beef like brisket and pork shoulder and prime rib. So this is something that I came up with this summer. I saw a lot of people doing like they were putting a brisket on a smoker and smoking it for like an hour or two and then sous it and saying actually the smoke was a bit much. And I thought, well, what you're looking for then is subtle smoke. So I took one of my smoker pellet tubes And I smoked a brisket for about four hours, but just a cold smoke. Seasoned it, vacuum sealed it, and then put it in the sous vide at 140 degrees for, like, the first one I ever did, I did 24 hours. I found out you can go as long as 48 before you start to get too much breakdown of the muscle tissue. And my wife, we, we served it at the workshop because my wife went, oh, you have to make that for the workshop. So we served that Saturday night along with the Rattlesnake and Rabbit and the uh, Elk and Cheddar sausages. Uh, And I heard no complaints about it. But that's a great way to get, like, smoke, without using, like, liquid smoke and all. Now, I'll tell you what I did with the brisket. I did a kind of typical salt, pepper, etc. seasoning on the brisket. But I also did some Worcestershire sauce and soy sauce, not before I smoked it, but when I put it in the bag to do sous vide. So, I seasoned it and I rubbed it with that, and I put it in the bag. And since I have a chamber vac sealer, I was able to vacuum seal it wet. Now, you could, if you wanted to do this, and you don't have a chamber vac, put your wet ingredients in your bag, make sure your bag is nice cleaned out, put the bag in the freezer until the liquid is frozen solid, then you can use a standard vacuum sealer for it. And it is a totally different experience when you do meat this way because you can make a medium to medium well to a rare thing that you normally would never taste that way. And I have to tell you, brisket, it's almost in a way like eating a Kobe beefsteak because it's got so much fat in it. Now, if you're going to do it with a brisket or a pork shoulder that has a ton of fat, do a pretty decent trim. Otherwise, that sous vide bag is going to just be full of liquid fat, I mean full liquid fat when you go to open it. So do give it a better trim than you typically would if you were going to do it on like a side box smoker or something like that. On that, when you're going to do large cru- cuts like oh I don't know a pork shoulder or a prime rib, plain old cheap yellow mustard, slather it all over the outside. Jack, I don't like mustard. Yeah, neither do I. Don't worry about it. It doesn't taste like mustard. The mustard fl- it's basically vinegar paste. And you know why you're doing it? So you can add, like, this really badass herb crust, and it will stick and stay on the meat. That's why you're doing it. So that's a really great way to go. Another thing I'll say on that, like, like, one of my favorite things to do with a pork shoulder, especially, like, a big boneless Boston butt pork shoulder, I will, if I'm not going to use mustard, I will rub it down with apple cider vinegar and then season it, same thing. I don't like vinegar. It won't matter. You won't know. My wife, every time I open a bottle of vinegar or mustard, she's like, oh, my God, what's that smell? Very sensitive to it. Never once complained about the end-resulting product from it because it doesn't taste like it. She was, she was uh, three weeks ago old when she found out that I put mustard in crab cakes, which I made with the panko breadcrumbs from the, the pork panko. Uh, so she had no idea that all these years, she's like, I love crab cakes. I'm like, not only do I put mustard in crab cakes, every single time you went to a restaurant that made crab cakes the right way, they put mustard in it. And she was a little bit mad about it, but then accepted that that's just the way that it is. Um, another thing I suggest you do, and it's not really a recipe or an ingredient, log your oven's performance. You know, you'll get something that says bake it at 350 degrees. Let's say you bake it at 350 degrees, and you just not—you ha- think like this should be a little bit higher temperature. It could be because of what the range of your oven is, like how cool does it get before it starts heating up, or it scorches the bottom a bit. Same thing can cause that. So as you make different things, if you cook something at 350 degrees and you know you're going to cook it again, you just make a little log in, a you know, little notebook that you keep in your kitchen. that like, Try this next time at 360 or 340 or what have you. Another thing on that, what I have found works really well If you're going to cook something at 350 degrees, and it says preheat oven to 350 degrees, then put it in your oven, and then cook for an hour. When you open the door of that oven, it's going to drop from, if it's at 350, the thing just went off, it hasn't any time to drop on its own, and you shut that oven, it's going to say 350, and you're going to think it's at 350. If you turn it up to 355 at that point and hit go, and your oven tells you its temperature, once you've done that, it's going to say something like 327, 328 degrees. It's going to drop at least that much. If I want to cook at 350, I will preheat to 375. I will then put the thing in the oven and set it to 350, and inevitably, when I do that, it'll say something like 348. It'll be well below 350 even, even going that much higher. That may not be true of everybody's oven, so log what your oven does. But it's an interesting thing. Just go, don't cook anything. You want to know the, the, how much does your oven drop? Set your oven to 350 degrees. Assuming you have an oven that tells you what its current temperature is, if you reset the temperature, okay. Set it to 350. Let the little alert go off. Open the oven. Count to 12. That's about how long it's going to take you to put the food in there, get it set right, and close the door. Reset it to 355 so it shows you where the temperature is, and look at your drop. I bet you it's 25 to 30 degrees. Now, the thing about that is, is then that oven has to drive that temperature up with that cold item back there in it, and the whole purpose of preheating isn't just that. It's also because a lot of times, especially bakers, will burn on the bottom if there's too much intensity of heat from below. Or if you're in an oven, like a split oven like I have, and you're using the upper chamber without removing the divider, you are cooking from above, you get the same effect in reverse. So there's a lot of shit that I don't have today. Broiling and finishing with broilers and all, all kinds of stuff like that. Um, I'll also say if you ever get a Blackstone griddle, you're going to fall in love with it in time. It is a buy once, cry once thing. They're expensive. I have a link in the show notes to the bigger one that I have. I bought the smaller one, the two burner one for my son. Both of us love ours. I even got, there's a guy on Amazon. I'll see if I can find it and remember to add it to the show notes. The diamond plate steel, like they make truck toolboxes and all. He makes a cover for your blackstone grill griddle that goes on there. I find it totally worth it because I use it. It's very ingeniously designed. It has two little hooks on it. So when you're, when you're cooking, you can take it off your griddle and hang it on the back. And that means when you're done cooking and it cools down and you've cleaned your griddle, you just reach back and close it. So unlike a tarp, you know, that you just, I'll do it later and then it rains and the rain comes in under your overhang and your griddle's covered in water and rusting, you actually use it. And unlike a tarp, you want to clean it and you don't want to put it on there screeching hot, but if it's still hot, you'll put the metal thing on where if you put the tarp on you're melting the tarp you you get what i'm saying so you'll use it so it's worth the money in my opinion and and god bless this guy for figuring out how to build a little side business that he's probably doing fairly well with based on his reviews but definitely consider getting a griddle like a flat top griddle because when it comes to searing cooking lots of food fast there's just nothing like it i i have a twelve hundred dollar weber grill that I barely use anymore because I use the Blackstone so much. I still use the grill, but man, I use the Blackstone more. Uh, best cookware. real quick, just want to go through. I've talked about this before, but I take you know two minutes to go through it. I use stainless steel for soups, sauces, a basic vegetable saute, something like that. I do not sear with stainless steel. It doesn't. It's not as easy to maintain and clean. And in my opinion, it doesn't do as good a job as carbon steel. And and so that's what stainless steel is mostly for me. is more like my saucepans and stuff like that. I use carbon steel for high heat searing. It's my go to for cooking eggs, whether they're scrambled, over easy, sunny side up, doesn't matter. And almost everything. Like I have a 12 inch lodge carbon steel skillet that sits on my stove that it's the first pan i grab if it's clean and something else isn't already in it and it's mostly always clean because i tend to clean my carbon steel as soon as i'm done cooking because it's much easier that way i use the ringer to clean both my cast iron and carbon steel it's a little piece of chain mail uh stainless steel works really good another hack for when you're cleaning carbon steel or uh, 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 cast iron, if you have some stickiness to it, and you want to get it off, and it's not coming off with the wringer, um, take some salt, plain old salt, throw it on there, use it like a scouring powder, and if you cook with carbon steel and cast iron across time, as long as you maintain it, no soap, no soap, no dishwasher, it just keeps getting better, and it gets easier and easier to maintain. Cast Iron, I have had an amicable amicable divorce from Cast Iron for things like high heat searing and making steaks and stuff like that. Uh, It is an amicable divorce. It's like when you get a divorce from your wife but your wife and you are still actually friends. It's a friendly divorce. Maybe you have some kids. You get together for birthday parties and stuff, and you do some stuff together, but you, you, you don't go home together. That's how I would describe what I do with cast iron now. Uh, pot roast, osso busco, stuff like that. Long, slow roast, things like that. That's what I use my cast iron for now, simply because I believe that carbon steel does a better job for your searing and things like that. Anodized aluminum is great for people that want like a, a almost no-maintenance pan. And the Ninja Foodie Pans, the never stick ones, I've got a link for them today. They are fantastic. I bought one at Kohl's, the biggest one they make. And I bought it because I keep getting questions asked about it. And I haven't added it to T-Spaz yet, but I do have a link today. I keep getting asked for, well, what do I get if I don't want to do all that stuff? And so I've played with some stuff. And th- this pan, now I've had... For a good ah, four months. And I'm completely happy with it. I've used metal spatulas. It hasn't messed up at all. It's a stainless steel aluminum clad multi layer pan with an anodized aluminum surface. And if you, if you, you don't, it's not so much a maintenance, it's a proper use. It's not a pan to put food into before it's preheated. You shouldn't do that anyway, but you really shouldn't. Like this thing, like nothing will stick to it. You can put cheese in there, but if the pan's cold when you put shit in there, it will stick, right? And so there's a lot of people in the reviews of this and other anodized aluminum pans on Amazon showing stuck on shit, and you're like, you don't know how to cook. I'm sorry, you don't, because I I have tried to use the pan properly to get something to stick to it, and nothing which I took a piece of American cheese like grilled cheese like your when you were a kid the cheese your mama made you a grilled cheese sandwich to go with a tomato soup on a snow day cheese I threw the whole piece in there and I let it cook till it was almost black and I took a spatula and it came right out so if you want something like that that you don't want to have to maintain the way that I suggest you maintain your carbon steel or your cast iron. That's the way I would go. But I will say, the maintenance of cast iron and carbon uh, carbon steel and cast iron is something that gets less across time to where it's so easy, it's it's basically cleaning the pan out when you're done. That's up to you. Getting the most from cooking shows. I just thought this would be a good way to finish this. So, number one, and I've talked about this before when I've talked about cooking. You are not a chef. You do not have a sous chef and a bunch of line cooks. You do not have a guy named Julio who shows up at 2.30 in the morning to make the stock for that day. Right? All the stuff that you see in restaurants is predicated on a system, and it is a system, that involves not one person doing everything. That's, that's how that works. Even like you get this guy, you see him and he bakes your whole meal... But who touched it? Who did all the prep work? Who did all the... the you're not going to be a chef. Don't try. Don't try. Just forget it. Your goal is to be a gourmet cook. You accept the fact that you don't have a $4,800 salamander broiler on the wall of your kitchen. Unless you're blessed and you do. So you're not going to do something and come out with a crisp skin on a quail like I get at Gloria's Restaurant. I can make a great quail... I can get that skin beautiful. I can't do what they do because I don't have what they have. They make, they call it a supa de Siete Mars, which is like a soup of the seven seas. And they actually changed the name of it to something else that's even more difficult to pronounce. Uh, I think they thought they were helping. But it's basically an El Salvador intake on a bouillabaisse, which is a a, a seafood soup. Uh, it's got red snapper, it's got mussels, et cetera, in it. I can make that. But the broth alone, if I'm going to make it the way they do, is going to take me out a day to make the broth. So I'm not going to... Like, that's the stuff I'm going to go buy in a restaurant and appreciate what went into it. I'm going to find my own ways. Like, if I really want to make that, I'm going to make it with a lot more of the seafood in it, right? And I'm going to go... So that I, I get more for less in dollars. I'm going to put, like, a freaking bag of mussels in there instead of two or three, The other thing that I'm going to do, I'm going to cheat. I'm going to use something like a better-than-bullion fish base, or I'm going to make a shrimp stock from my shrimp uh, shells whenever I cook shrimp, and I'm going to freeze that, and I'm going to concentrate it down and freeze it. I'm going to grab that out, and I'm going to do my best, and I'm not going to try to emulate it perfectly. So when you watch cooking shows and you're watching a chef, you don't understand that a lot of times, though it looks like he just made it in his kitchen, he still had all that prep work done by somebody else. And so what you're seeing is condensed into a timeline that's unrealistic. And and one of the ways that I I always thought that and then Alton Brown, who's one of my favorite TV cooks, he did a show called The Making of Good Eats and he showed that he cooks almost nothing in a show. It's almost all done by supporting cast. And so he's only doing either the finishing or even just showing what happened. And and that's fine. He, because if you ever try to document Anything in video, you'll find out how much you'll start respecting people that do it well. It's five times more work to video a thing while you're doing it, even with help, than it is to just do it yourself. But just accept that. You're, You're a cook, not a chef. When you watch cooking shows, focus on the technique and the procedure and specifically the order in which things are done. And look for the little things that they don't really go deep into. Or when you know, like one of my favorite shows honestly is a show called Guy's Ranch Kitchen and he has this outdoor kitchen that's probably cost more than my house. And he will bring in like four I mean top end chefs. People are like James Beard Award winners, Michelin Star Cooks, uh people that are just amazing. And give them an idea. Like, oh today we're gonna do game day, but your take on game day. So like wings and stuff like that, or you know, holiday or healthy this, or tie or whatever. And they all cook. And he'll be talking to them while they're doing a thing and asking what they're doing. Little subtle things that are said during those moments are like, ah, light bulb. And it might not have anything to do with that dish. It's little things like I'm talking about today. And this is a lifelong process. So look for that and the order of things. And a lot of times these cooking shows, you can go to the website and you can get the recipe. Right, And you'll get some of the procedure. But what you'll notice is sometimes the procedure on the website was put in by some intern that didn't quite get it right. So follow the procedure and the recipe. And I definitely recommend when you follow recipes and and procedures, you do them exactly the way that the person that developed it said the first time. So when you do your take on it, your addition, your subtraction, whatever... You know what you've done. Now, if you hate onions, so you remove the onions, that's different. If you are allergic to something like corn, so you don't put the corn in it because it will kill you, that's different. Assuming that's not the case, make it, and even then, make it as close as you can to what they've told you. Then, the next time you make it, use your notes, make your addition, subtractions, cook longer, cook slower, whatever it is, and compare the difference honestly right? Don't be emotionally attached to what you did. There's a reason that people that do this for a living are able to do this for a living. And understand that even if you did exactly what they said, it probably won't come out as good as when they did it, because there's a lot of little things and subtleties and looking at things and knowing, hey, it said 10 minutes, but I'm going to call it at 9 because it looks the right way now, and that way we don't overdo it. Um, Also... Understand something about, especially the competition shows, the Beat Bobby Flays, the Guys Grocery Games and all. There's a lot of trickery in there. And if you know how long certain things take, and you know that these people were supposed to make a thing in 20 minutes or 40 minutes or whatever, and they say, well, this normally takes hours to make tender, but we can pressure cook it. Have you ever thrown something in a pressure cooker and they're going to do this in 20 minutes? And then it takes like 15 before the pressure cooker starts going, right? So it starts actually pressure cooking. But they somehow did the whole thing in 20 minutes. You want me to tell you how they do that? They know what they're going to do before they do it, and certain things are preset. So if that piece of meat's going to go into that pressure cooker, and that pressure cooker is going to have, let's say, some broth in there with it, uh, to, to help with the cooking and, and what have you. That pressure cooker has been put on a burner. It has been brought up to almost boiling temperature so that when that chunk of meat is thrown on top of it in there and that pressure cooker is closed up, it starts to cook. That's just one example. You'll notice when they go and grab their ingredients that they're like laid out on a tray. A lot of the shit is done in advance. So don't be taken in by the how quickly they do it. it just... Focus on, again, the technique, the ingredients, the recipes, and the little nuances to get the most out of shows like that. And enjoy them. I mean, it's, it's fun. And I'm, anybody thinks I'm putting these people down, I am not. I would get my ass waxed on a show like that. These are people that, you know, they're classically trained or what have you. They have amazing knife skills. It's still a huge time crunch. Personally, I'd rather see them given more time to see what they can really do with the time and so that we can focus more on the food other than Katie Lee slutting all over Bobby Flay trying to distract him, as an example, if you've ever watched that show. Like, I, I would rather see more of that, but that's just me. They have a formula. I guess it works for ratings. Um, try to come away with one to two things for any episode you watch, technique, ingredient, combination. And this is when I stop watching a show even if I find it entertaining with, with cooking, because I am watching cooking shows to learn. If I watch a couple, three episodes and I'm like, I got nothing. I got nothing. I got nothing out of those three episodes that I'm going to put in my quiver. I'm done with that show. Even if I like the person behind it or whatever. If it's really entertaining, maybe I'll watch it. But that's what I'm looking to get. That's what I try to do with this show. I hope that every day when you get to listen to my podcast, you're like, oh, I learned that. And I learned that. If you have like one thing that actually goes into your life knowledge out of a show if I can give you one of those and I can make you laugh per episode I'm batting a thousand in my opinion that's what I'm looking for from these shows right Um, my final thoughts have fun it's not really that hard I learned so much from my two grandmothers about cooking and I do things so divergently different from both of them but especially my Ukrainian grandmother My Ukrainian grandmother was an amazing baker and cook as long as we're not talking about meat for the sake of the meat. She was old school Ukrainian. Came here as a child right about the turn of the last century. Okay? She grew up in a time where meat was very possibly tainted or rotted a little bit by the time you got it. And so there was a fear factor with meat, and I guess never caught up with it, and so meat was cooked to the point of annihilation. And there was nothing you could do to prevent it other than to physically intervene. I grew up thinking until I was, you know, 10 years old-ish, somewhere in that range, that there was a beef roast and a roast beef, and they were different things. My Italian grandmother made a roast beef. That's what she called it. So that's what I thought it was. And my Ukrainian grandmother made a beef roast. So I thought they were different. And what the difference was, a roast beef was a little bit pink in the middle. It was all juicy and it was scrumptious. And a beef roast was this dried out hunk of beef that when you put gravy on it, the gravy went into the meat like it was dehydrated or something because it partially was. So I tell my dad, like I wish other grandmother would make a roast beef. He's like, she makes one almost every damn Sunday. And I'm like... No! Grandma Moyer makes the roast beef. He goes, oh. He goes, you can't tell her that. Like, what? He goes, she cooks it too long. And he said, there's nothing you can do to stop it. <laughs> By the time I was 11, I figured out Grandma would put the roast beef in there. Beef roast, right? I'd go cut the end off of it and wrap it up in foil and set it up on top of the stove and put it back in. And, I could, and she would like freak out that I would eat it with it still being pink inside. But I'd be sitting there grubbing on that, and the rest of the family didn't want to say nothing, and, like, they ate it, the, So, like, so that was a very... Like, she made a steak. This woman would take a, like, three-quarter-inch-thick porterhouse steak, chop up onions, throw in a cast-iron pan. Wait, it's going to get worse. Put, like, half the pan full of water, and throw that steak in there, and boil it, flipping it a couple times, until the water was gone. Then put a knob of butter in and finish it. Would brown, it would look beautiful, but... It was boiled, you boiled a porterhouse. So you might think I learned nothing from her. Learned a ton from her. Woman could make chili. Woman could make halushki and halupkis and plerogis and lasagnas and all kinds of breads and cakes and pastries. I don't eat now, but I still learned a lot. We're trying to find a recipe that's as close as we can to what my grandmother used to make, these nut roll cookies. And we found some like Hungarian walnut roll cookies that are close but they're not the same like i want like i want to resurrect her recipes that died with her apparently because nobody cared to save them when she passed away and i was hell and gone from the country when that happened like so i learned so much from her about things like that slow cooking stuff that that could handle it like if you gave her something like a, a like a pot roast where you're cooking with a slow moist cook it was delicious Learned about using browning bags for poultry with her. That was a big thing. My Italian grandmother taught me more about like how to treat a piece of meat properly in a frying pan. But I still do things way differently. We can learn so much by being exposed. And that's why I like the cooking shows. Even though a lot of times what they're cooking, I have no interest. And in, I don't watch the cake ones and stuff like that. I don't care about that. If I'm watching a show that I even usually like and they're going to do desserts, I generally tune out. But I still try to watch a lot of it because it is this exposure. You know, when you realize, like, when I was really young, I thought curry was something they made in India because I knew about it from people that I knew from the UK and they loved it because they brought Indians to... Uh to the u k in large numbers during the colonial period of, of Briti- you know British colonialism, and so like I didn't know there were Thai curries. I didn't know that there were all these different there was red curries and green curries and yellow curries, and we had curries that were more middle Eastern like oh my God, there's this whole world of curry, and you're like I don't like curry and I, I when somebody tells me that, I'm like, unless you just completely hate flavor <laughs> and and flavors that stand up and and spice then you probably just haven't tried enough yet. It's like saying you don't like beer. Well, what beers have you had? Well, I had Budweiser. I don't like it either. Like, this is one of the greatest things about food is it's one of the greatest ways that we can experience other cultures. You think about it, when you go somewhere, you always want to find Like, And I'm not talking about going from Florida to Georgia. right? I'm talking about like going from you know, Florida to Mexico. Or Florida to Venezuela, which I guess right now you wouldn't really want to do, but you know a couple of years ago maybe you would have. Or to Africa, or to France, or to Italy. You always want to eat. You always want to eat when you're there, because you know intrinsically you're going to experience the culture through the food. And so as we learn to cook these things, we can begin to experience these things and create these bridges without even actually leaving home. I'm going to say this one more last thing, man. There is nothing that will broaden your horizons as a cook, like eating really great food. And so I know a lot of people that say they can't afford to eat out the way that I and Dorothy do. And to be blunt, I hate to say this, you're wrong. Because I look at what they do. I look at what they do and I go, No, you can't afford to eat the way we eat out a couple times a month because you eat out a couple times a week. And I would rather go to a truly elevated place that to makes to, to make something in a way that I can't quite do once or twice a month than go out to eat pedestrian crap that I can make in my sleep better than that place on any given day. So, anyway, I just thought this would be a fun episode. It would give you a bunch of ideas, turn the culinary mindset on as we head into Christmas. Christmas and New Year's, great times to make lots of good food. And even though I kind of talked some chef-y, stuff today, don't stray from the stuff that's traditional. Don't stray from the stuff. You know, go ahead and do the things. Like, in the South, especially Texas, New Year's Eve, you eat black-eyed peas. Black-eyed peas is bacon. You know why you do it? For good or luck. I had a friend named Brian and his wife, Carol, she used to say good all the time. She wasn't... Uh, 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 Illiterate or anything, and she didn't really talk. That was her, th- it was like a, a playful thing. She would say, Gooder. Uh, she knew very well what she was doing. But she would say, If you don't eat any of the black, and I'm not a huge fan of black eyed peas, I'm really not. But I'd eat a little bit of them every year when we would hang out on New Year's Eve because it was important to her. Like, so my final thing with that if you are, you've reformed, you're like me, you eat keto 99% of the time, and you go to your mom's and she made mashed potatoes, eat some of the frickin' mashed potatoes. Don't hurt your mom's feeling. Or your aunt, or whatever. Eat a little bit of stuffing. Like, it's one day a year. Don't eat a big pile of it, because then you're going to be miserable. But throw a couple, little bit of this, a little bit of that, you know? Eat it. Make sure she sees you taking it. Chill, man. Because uh, that's my final thing leading into the holiday. I do not really say for Thanksgiving. <sighs> Nothing to do with cooking. Definitely has to do with the dinner table. Holidays are not the time to air your grievances. They're not the time for political discussions and arguments. And even if they're trying, somebody's trying to bait you, just don't go there. Let it go. You get a little bit lubricated socially with some adult beverages, makes few old fashions and stuff like that. You want a great, you want a great little uh, aperitif drink. You got to go easy with this though, guys. And you might want to make it this year because you. Unless somebody can tell me a substitute, I've just heard that this is being discontinued. So you take a high-proof peppermint schnapps, something like a Rumplemints. It's 100 proof. Be careful. Fill a shot glass, normal shot glass, not a jumbo one, halfway with the Rumplemints, 100 proof peppermint schnapps, whatever. Ice 101 would work for this. Then you need white chocolate Godiva liqueur. Very gently pour that so you keep some separation. And fill the shot glass. So you've got half the white chocolate liqueur and half the peppermint. It's a white chocolate peppermint schnapps shot. Delicious. You have a couple of those, though. Next thing you're telling Uncle Ernie, he's an idiot because he's a liberal. Don't do that. Be at peace. This is the last time that I'm going to talk to you on a new episode before Christmas and for the rest of the year. Be at peace. You'll get a little bit of this message during the Christmas special, but I'll add it here. Be at peace. Because some of you can be like, I already listened to the Christmas special three times, Shaq. I'm not gonna. That's fine. Be at peace with your family. Nothing going on in the world is more important than your relationship with people that will depend on you, or you may depend on someday. With that, I wish you the best through the rest of the year. I'll be back tomorrow, and through the rest of the year with reruns. But I'll be back for real on January 2nd, 2023. Until next year, my friends.